Well, this morning, uh, in your Bibles, uh, let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. And uh, just to kind of refresh our memories, since it's been a few weeks since I was gone, and we had a, a little sermon last week on Ecclesiastes and different things. We're, gonna go, we're back into our verse by verse study of 1 Thessalonians, uh, we all of chapter uh, 3 here this morning. And so, remember the Apostle Paul. On his missionary journeys, and, and he was at this time with Silas and Timothy, and uh, they had passed through a region called Macedonia, which is up in Greece, and he went to a, a city, a town called Thessalonica. And there in Thessalonica, he preached the gospel of Jesus, and people were saved, and a, and a church was formed. But Paul was only there for maybe a few months, we think. We know it wasn't very long. But he preached the good news. People got saved. So I don't know how big the church was. I imagine it was kind of on the smaller side. But then what happened? Remember, persecution broke out. They formed a mob and they went down there and they tried to kill the Apostle Paul. And the believers had to sneak him out of town just to save his life. This was the life of the Apostle Paul. Remember, in fact, before he came to Thessalonica, he was in a place called Philippi. We talked about that some weeks back. And in Philippi, remember, they, he, they arrested him and they beat him with rods and they threw him into prison. His feet were up in the stocks. And then God showed up in the middle of the night when they were worshiping him. And uh, the jailer got saved, the Philippian jailer. His whole family got baptized in the middle of the night. And awesome, awesome. We learn all this from the book of Acts. teaches us these things. And so then from Philippi, with the wounds still upon his back, he comes into Thessalonica, preaches the gospel, people get saved, starts a church, and then they try to kill him and he has to run for his life. Then he goes down to the next town called Berea. And in Berea, same thing, preaches the gospel. People can say a small, starts at a small church. And you know what? Those people from Thessalonica chased him down in Berea and tried to kill him. And he had to run for his life there one more time. And so Paul had to leave these beloved new baby Christians in Thessalonica and Berea. And in Philippi, he had to do that a lot, actually. But here, dealing with the Thessalonians... He was worried about them. He didn't want to leave them behind. He was their spiritual father. He had much to teach them. They were just infants in Christ. And he was worried about them. He was worried that the devil would get in there and tempt them. And then their faith would be lost. Apparently, we also learned um, in our study that there were people outside the church that were bad-mouthing Paul and trying to undermine his ministry. So what we have is that uh, as soon as a work of God is established... Then the devil's right there, isn't he? He's always like that. He's trying to stamp out these little churches. So Paul, he's trying to get back to minister to the Thessalonians, but it seems like every time he tries to go, they're trying to kill him. It's not working out. He can't get back into town. And in chapter 2, we read that he said, I kept trying to get to you guys, but Satan blocked my way. It was a satanic blockade, uh, probably from the persecution, unless there was something else happening. But he couldn't get to go back. He couldn't get to minister to these new Christians that he had abandoned pretty much and run for his life. Well, as we're going to see today, Paul found a way around the devil's blockade. We spoke about this a couple weeks ago. He sent Timothy, his faithful worker in Christ, to go and minister to the Thessalonians. And of course, these letters that he's writing are getting around the devil's blockade to minister to these uh, uh, young Christians. So chapter 3. First Thessalonians, uh, you guys will uh, join me by standing out of reverence for God's holy word. Let us read. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 3 together this morning. Verse 1. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that, when we, that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted, and it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you, and that our labors might have been in vain. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live, since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and the Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else just as ours does for you. And may he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our Lord, of our God and Father, when the Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 <laughs> Starting there in verse uh, 1 and 2. It says, So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service in the spreading of the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith. Okay, so Paul and Silas and Timothy, well, they were down in Athens, apparently. Right? Uh, in Acts chapter 17, you can read about uh, Paul as he actually preached there in Athens. It's a fascinating, fascinating passage. It looks like uh, Silas and Timothy weren't with him all the time, especially when he's preaching in Acts 17, but I think for a little while they were down there. We see here Paul, he's very stressed, leaving these new baby Christians behind. He's their spiritual father. Right? He got to lead them to Jesus, and then he had to leave so quickly. There's so much more he needs to talk to them about and teach them and help them to love God. And so he's, he's just worried sick over these people. But he can't be there. And realize they're the only Christians in the city. There's no other church. There are no other Christians. They don't even have a New Testament. This letter, this, this is the first letter of the New Testament they're receiving is First Thessalonians. I mean, somebody had a scroll. If you went to the Jewish people, they probably had a scroll somewhere about the Old Covenant. They didn't have the New Testament like we do. Did they have a pastor? Well, if they did, he had only been a Christian for like a month, maybe, or two, like everybody else. So maybe, hopefully, there was somebody that was trying to help lead this little group of believers in this town. So Paul, he's worried. He's stressed. And no doubt they would face persecution, because they just persecuted him and ran him out of town. So he's thinking, well, what are they doing to the church? 
And so he says this phrase here in, in, in verse 1, uh, when we could stand it no longer. And he uses that phrase twice in chapter 3. When we could stand it no longer, what did he do? He sent Timothy off to strengthen and encourage them in their faith. See, Paul, he was, he's the boss. And uh, the authorities apparently knew who he was, probably by sight, and uh, they were trying to kill him. So Paul probably tried to get into the city a few times, and it, it, was, it was not good. So he realized, hey, I can't go. But you know what? Maybe they don't really know who Timothy is, or they don't really care who Timothy is. So maybe Timothy can sneak in and sneak out and minister to the Thessalonians. For Paul, you know, it was a big deal to let Timothy go. Hmm. Timothy was his dear friend and a vital worker in the mission field, right? Everywhere in the scripture when it talks about Timothy, Paul has nothing but beautiful things to say about him. He was so faithful. And so it was a big deal to let him go. Because Timothy could be killed. They might find out Timothy works for Paul and he might have killed him. He can't afford to lose him. I also think, too, Paul might have been worried about losing track of Timothy or Timothy losing track of Paul. We live in a world with such great communication. I can track my wife down on my cell phone just looking at a little dot weeping around through the GPS thing. Oh, she's coming home from work. Here she is on the freeway, right? In those days, I mean, way before a telephone was invented, you know, you could lose track of human beings on earth. And so if, if he sends him Timothy off to Thessalonica, well, Paul just keeps getting driven out of town left and right. What if they drive him out of Athens? Well, where is he going to go next? And, and Timothy tries to find him, and he can't find him? You imagine losing the Apostle Paul, right? What do I do now, Lord? Mm-hmm. Yet, of course, they live by faith, mm-hmm. like we have to do every single day. Everything's uncertain, so we have to trust God. They desperately wanted to find out about their beloved Thessalonians, see how they're doing, to minister to them. So Paul sends wonderful Timothy to go check on them. And what's he say he's going to do? He's going to strengthen them and encourage them. That's the wording there, to strengthen them and encourage them. We all need to learn to become Timothys, to strengthen one another, encouraging one another as well. See, we're all in this together, and we all need help, and we all need encouragement, and we all need strengthening. In the church, let's look for ways to speak an encouraging word to one another. Some of you naturally are pretty good encouragers. Some of you I know. When I talk to you, I get encouraged, because you're an encourager. (laughs) Did you know that there's a spiritual gift of encouragement? Some people think, well, I don't have a great spiritual gift. Well, there's all kinds of them, and one of them is encouragement. Romans chapter 12 says if their gift is encouraging, let them encourage. So I release you in the name of Jesus, encourage, and get with it. And each gift can grow, right? Maybe you just got a little bit of a gift. Well, it can grow, it can blossom. And what a cool gift, encouragement. Encouraging people, that is lovely, isn't it? So go and encourage one another. Now, if your gift is not, you know, like you're a a spiritual Eeyore or something, you know, and you're not encouraging people naturally, but you know what? You can be encouraging. Right? You can be encouraging. So here's the deal. We all have to try to be intentional. We have to choose to be intentional with our brothers and sisters in Christ and look for ways to encourage and strengthen. Let's try to hang out best we can. Come a little early, stay a little late, come to the potluck, the men's stuff, the women's thing, the Bible studies, and all these things that we do around here, get to know each other. And when you find out someone is struggling... Well, pray for them, right? Pray for them. Talk to them. 
And maybe even on a Sunday morning, you find out somebody's struggling and say, hey, I gotta pray for you right now. Just pray, bow your heads. It's church, pray, talk to each other, <laughs> love each other. And then check in on them, right? Check on them, text them throughout the week or next Sunday, say, how are you doing? I've been praying for you. Let us look for ways to encourage and strengthen one another. So help us, Jesus, to be Timothy's one to another. Just think we're all running around trying to encourage and bless each other. Isn't that a cool place to be? That's awesome. Verse 3 and 4. So that no one would be unsettled by these trials. Okay, he's going to encourage you so that no one, none of these Thessalonians, would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted, and it turned out that way, as you well know. Well, Paul was afraid that these new believers would become unsettled, right? That's the wording, that unsettled by these trials. That's a, that's a good word. Think about that word, unsettled. If you're settled, you're in a good spot. You've got a root. You're, you're gripping. You know, you're not going anywhere. When you're unsettled, you're kind of like, oh, I don't know where I'm at or what's going on. And it can be confusing. It can be scary. And so there's these trials. What are the trials? Well, it's the persecution that fell upon Paul, their spiritual leader, right in front of them. They're driven out of town, almost killed by an angry mob. That would be unsettling, wouldn't it? Hmm. Especially if you're a brand new Christian. But I don't care, even if, you, if you're an old Christian, wouldn't that be unsettling? Let's just try to put ourselves in the sandals of the Thessalonians for a moment. Imagine, say like this morning, an angry mob bursts into the church. Hmm. And they grab me, and they pummel me, and they beat me up. And then some of you grab me by the arm, and you just bolt out that door with me. You're like, we're getting you out of here. They're going to kill you. And you, you put me in your car, and you speed off. Right? And you find out there's all these people in town looking for me, and they're trying to kill me. And at night, I'm hiding in your trunk, and some of you just drive me out of town. we got to save his bacon. Get him out of here. So now your pastor's gone. Next Sunday, you gather. Hmm. But, you know, you don't gather at church because you're afraid that the angry mob might be coming back for all of you. And so maybe you begin to gather in somebody's house on Tuesday. And on Wednesday, you go to another person's house. And, and so you're, you're broken up and you're scattered, but you're meeting and you're praying and you're worshiping and you're trusting in Jesus. But wouldn't that be a little unsettling, right? Can you imagine? And then really, to top it off, let's, let's say that all of you were Christians for like a month or two. Wow, wow, that'd be unsettling, wouldn't it? You're like, what did we get ourselves into? What is happening here? Do we really want to serve God? Oh, you might start to question things. See, that's what, what Paul is worried about. And then, also, let's say you don't have the Bible. You don't have the New Testament. I mean, somebody over there has got like a big scroll of the Old Covenant. These would be scary times. Unsettling. And you're the only Christians in Red Bluff. And then you find all the people in Red Bluff, they don't like you. They don't like Christians. Well, this would be unsettling. So this is what they're going through. And here's the deal. When people are unsettled, sometimes they can begin to doubt God. And that's what Paul is worried about. When people become unsettled, sometimes, not always, but sometimes, they can begin to doubt God. Hmm. 
The devil loves to kick you when you're down. That's what he does. He's always looking for those weak moments to attack. So the devil will attack us when life is uncertain, when we're afraid, when we're upset, when there's something discombobulating us or unsettling us, right? And we're distressed and disturbed. The devil is right there to kick us, to tempt us. He wants us to doubt the Lord. This morning, is there something unsettling in your life today? First off, we got to kind of get used to that, because that's kind of how it is, right? There's going to be a whole lot of unsettling things that will come and go out of your life. This is the broken, fallen world in which we live, so we cling to Jesus. Like we sang about earlier, you don't part the waters, I'm trusting in you, Lord. But this morning, is there something unsettling in your life that's been disturbing you? And maybe you've, you've even been tempted to doubt God a little bit, or a lot. Are you weak, or sad, or upset, or afraid, or uncertain, or worried? Hmm. Well, the devil, I know, he's right there. That's what he does. But God is way stronger than him. So I tell you, dear brothers and sisters, stand firm in the faith, okay? Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Do not doubt. Cling to Jesus and his truth. Draw near to God, the Bible says, and he will draw near to you. Amen. Don't doubt in the darkness what God has revealed to you in the light. Don't doubt in the darkness what God has revealed to you in the light. Sometimes when we become unsettled and unsure and confused and fearful, that's kind of a dark place, isn't it? And you can't see very well, and you're unsure what's going on. So what do you do? You cling to what you know is true, what God has revealed to you in the light. Maybe you can't even see the truth, but you can feel it. There it is, and you hold on to it in the darkness, and you hold on to that truth, and then you will come into the light eventually. And you say, oh, here it is. I can see it. Sorry, Lord, I was doubting that I held to you. So cling to Jesus, cling to the truth, even in the darkness, and you'll make it into the light. And we're all going to pass through dark times when we're unsure and we're worried. Cling to Jesus, he is there. Well, Paul was worried about his beloved Thessalonians. Would they be so unsettled that the devil would get in there and tempt them? And and down in verse 5, he was afraid their faith would be destroyed. So he sends Timothy to go and check on him and report back to Paul and try to strengthen them and encourage them. Notice in verse 3, Paul says about the trials, the persecutions. What does he say? He says that we were destined for them. Mm, Interesting. He says we were destined for these trials, for these persecutions. Hmm. I don't think... Yeah, Paul was probably destined for them more than maybe you and I, maybe, maybe, maybe not. Because the Bible is very clear about serving Jesus, right? We're supposed to pick up our cross, which is a symbol of death and torture, and follow Jesus. And Timothy uh, is told, uh, in 2 Timothy, let me read to you, 3.12, if you're taking notes, it's a great uh, scripture to jot down, 2 Timothy 3.12. Paul says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And our Savior warned us about these things, didn't he? Absolutely. John chapter 15 
Verse 18, again, take a notes there, John 15, 18 through 20. Jesus says, if the, world hated, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. Thank you, Jesus. And that is why the world hates you. See, the world will hate us sometimes because we're not one of them. We don't live and act and think and, and speak and do the things they're doing. And they go, wow. Because we belong to God now. And so sometimes there can be friction there. He says, again, in verse 20, he says, remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obey my teaching, they will obey yours as well. And that's good. Some people did obey the teachings of Jesus. So when we give out the word of God, some people will heed it. And they will obey it and they will love it. But then again, the master was persecuted. Are we greater than he? Absolutely not. Therefore, we may find ourselves as his servants also being persecuted. In Matthew 24, Jesus talking about the end times says this to his disciples and really all of the church throughout all of the ages, Matthew 24, 9. He says, <clears throat> Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away <clears throat> from the faith and will betray and hate each other. There will be a great apostasy in the end days. I think we're already seeing some of that. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. That's been going on for a long time. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. That's what we got to do. Stand firm to the end. And the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world and as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Jesus is speaking here about the last days, apostasy and persecution. Please understand we're living in the last days. How do I know that? Because Peter told us we were in the last days 2,000 years ago as he preached in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. Think about that. We've been in the last days for 2,000 years. Um, we might be getting to the end of them maybe, right? I'm thinking we're getting closer at least. So many Christians have been persecuted since the last days began, over the last 2,000 years. I mean, they used to throw them to the lions in the Colosseum, remember? Burn them at the stake and crucify them, beat them and kill them and imprison them, and it happens today, right? All through the ages, it hasn't stopped. In fact, they say more people are persecuted and martyred for the faith now than ever were in the past. Of course, all the apostles were persecuted, all were martyred except for John. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ has been hunted and abused through the ages. Many have tried to destroy her, and yet she lives on. Amen. Amen. And Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, he said, I love it, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not overtake her. Will not overcome her. Amen. Boy, and the, the gates of hell have been trying from the very beginning, to strike down the Lord's church. But she lives on. Mm, thank you, Jesus. Right. Thank you. Amen. Today, many brothers and sisters in Christ suffer 
for their faith. They are the heroes of the faith, to be sure. In the Muslim countries, in the Arab countries, the communist countries, you got the Russia and the China and whatever North Korea is, I don't know. But it's horrendous over there. India, a lot of African countries down there, much persecution and many more. Just to think of one, because I know a little bit about them, China. The government has been so horrendous to Christians in China throughout the ages. Today I understand <clears throat> there are approved churches in China that are run basically by the government. They're called registered churches. They preach what the government allows them to preach, which is not the real gospel. So if you go to China and you want to find a real church, you want to find the, the people preaching the real word of God and the gospel of Jesus, you have to go <clears throat> to what's called the underground church. The underground church. It's also called the unregistered church. <laughs> and they're hiding out. They also call them the house church because they meet in people's houses at times when people aren't looking. Our brothers and sisters over there Today, they meet illegally to worship Jesus. Secretly. Right? We walk with our Bibles in hand up the steps in the middle of the day when people are looking. They cannot do that in China today unless you're part of the, the government church. But there in secret, they preach and teach the good news of Jesus. And actually, many are saved. That, that's a growing church over there. The government's been trying to stamp out the underground church, but they can't. But they should give it a go, and they harm it, for sure. They harm it from time to time. If you're caught worshiping God, having a Bible, meeting together, you are uh, often beaten and imprisoned. There are heavy fines they will levy upon people. Even if you're the guy who has a warehouse and you let the church meet there, even if you don't go, you get a huge fine, right? They're trying to do anything they possibly can to stop it. Over the years, they played different games. Some, sometimes, they, they, for years, they eased up on the church in China. And they let them have a little freedom. They stopped messing with them, and it was a trick. They wanted the underground church to surface. And people started, can you imagine, they started to feel comfortable. Like, hey, I'm going to get killed for being Christians. And they started meeting on Sunday or out in the open. And it was just a trick. They wanted to identify who they were and who the pastors were so they could go and destroy them and arrest them. People in China, if you don't do it, the government wants them. That people just disappear over there. And so the church has learned they can't trust them and they have to stay underground. There's a pastor, I don't know anything about this, this guy, but I remember reading... Um, a little blurb about a book that he wrote, and he, uh, I have a pastor somewhere in America right now, I'm not sure, I think his name is David Platt, I can't vouch for him at all, I don't know his theology or anything, but he had a fascinating thing, he said that he was in China, and he was asked to preach and teach over there, and so wherever he was in China, I don't know, they said this is how we do church, at 2 a.m. you're going to stand on this street corner over here and wait for someone to come get you. So there he was, all by himself at 2 a.m. in China, sitting there in the dark, standing there, looking around, waiting for someone to get him. Somebody emerged after a few minutes, walked down the street and said, hey, follow me. They went down a couple blocks and alleyways, whoop, they went into some little building, looking this way and that, make sure no one was watching. He said over the next hour, the people would slowly trickle in, because you can't all go to church at the same time. That would be suspicious, right? 
It's at 2 a.m., two people come, three people, one person, five people, right? They slowly trickle in over the next hour. He said the room was small and it was packed full of people, and they all sat on the ground, there were no chairs. And he preached the Bible, and they worshiped for hours and hours and hours. It wasn't like one hour, like, I stopped preaching because I got stuff to do, right? Of course, I don't know, maybe they only get to meet once a month. I don't know. It might be too suspicious to meet every week. I'm not sure what, how often they did it, but they were hungry for the Word of God. And then he said, right before the sun came up, they started to trickle out, a few here, a few there, because you got to leave the same way they came. And then what did they do? They went home, got ready, and they went to work all day. And they've been up all night worshiping Jesus. These are the heroes of the faith, right? And they get caught. It's a major problem for them and their families. And so this guy was so moved, he came home and he, he started something at his church. They still do it, apparently, every year. He calls it Secret Church. And they have a church service at 2 a.m., for like six hours, once a year, and they pray for the persecuted church, and they worship, and they praise, and they do all kinds of things, and it's a special deal. I've actually thought about doing secret church around here at 2 a.m. I don't know if anybody would come. I don't know. But just think, if that was the church in America, whew, how many would come to church? Some people are like, I've had people tell me 10.30 was too early. I'm like, too early? <laughs> it's 10.30? <laughs> What's going on here? Right? What if you actually had to sacrifice a little? Of course, I think persecution refines the church. And those who are Christians are really Christians in those persecuted places. Well, the master said, if they persecuted him, they will persecute us. Let me read to you about a dear brother in China. I had this crazy little book called Jesus Freaks. It's all about these martyrs. Can't read without just weeping openly, generally. I could have found more modern examples because there's many, but this one just stirred my heart. It's the 1950s in mainland China. A young man, he's 16 years old, his name is Yun. If I'm saying his name right, Yun. And he says this He says, Is there a book that tells us how to get to heaven? Yes, Yun. I have seen it with my own eyes, answered the old man. Let's just think about that for a second. There's a 16-year-old kid. He heard there's a book that tells you how to get to heaven. He's never seen it. But he found an old guy who had seen it once with his own eyes. Can you imagine? This is the 1950s. And he says, well, where is the book? Young asked. I must see it for myself. Oh, it's far away. Over 35 miles, the old man said sadly. It's too far to walk, and you have no bicycle. Let that sink in for a minute. In the 1950s, in mainland China... A boy wants to find the Bible, and the nearest one is 35 miles away. In the 1950s in America, how far would you have to go to find someone who had a Bible? How far would you have to go today? 35 miles, the old man said, sadly. But it's too far. You don't have a bicycle. You can't get there. He says, I will go. Young replied, this young man, he walked 35 miles to meet the man who was the owner of the Bible. Imagine he gets to this little village, and he's asking around, hey, who's the guy who owns the Bible here? Like, I don't know. They'll get, oh, that's the guy at the end, the little hut at the end. <laughs> right? So he goes down there, he knocks on the door, are you the man who owns the Bible in this community? He says, yeah, I got it. I bet this man led him to Jesus. I bet that's how, he doesn't tell how he came to faith, but I bet that's how it happened. 
So he met the man who owned the Bible. And he says eventually he was able to get a Bible of his own. I bet he had to save up his money. He had to, I mean, even to find one, right? He was able to buy his own Bible. It says, Young then joined with other Christians. And together they went from village to village to village telling people about Jesus. Because they don't have a book that tells them how to get to heaven. So he's like, I got it. Let me tell you how to get to heaven. As this was illegal, the police would often stop him. Young came up with a way around this problem. He had read in 1 Samuel 21, 13 that David once pretended to be crazy to escape his enemies. Do you remember that? You ever read that? <laughs> he like rules and I like a crazy man. And the king lets him go. And I don't need another crazy dude. Get him out of here. And, and David got away. Well, Yun says, well, that worked for David. Let me give it a shot. So when the police came, Yun did the same thing. He made a spectacle of himself, acting like a crazy guy. And the police would laugh at him and let him go. After they were gone, he would become serious again and continue to speak to the people about salvation. <laughs> but it caught up with him eventually. Before long, however, Young was cruelly beaten and put in prison for his faith. Afterwards, he had to stand public trial in a marketplace. Young was small and thin. He was dressed in rags and barefoot. His face was deformed from the beatings. The judge said to him, We will give you one last chance to save your life if you leave the underground church. See, they were underground in the 50s. And if you join the three self-patriotic church, we will make you one of its leaders. That's the government church. They call it the patriotic church. All right. He says, If you leave the underground church, we'll make you a leader. In our, in our church, the patriotic church, Young remained silent. He knew the government church worked closely with the communists and often turned house church Christians. <clears throat> excuse me. Often turned house church Christians in to be imprisoned and beaten. The judge brought in a doctor who said to him sarcastically, I will heal your dumbness. The doctor forced needles under Yun's fingernails. When Yun passed out, the policeman walked up and down on his body, saying, your stubbornness led to this. He was brought back to a cell where the other prisoners urinated on him. His only treasure was a tin cup on which he had painted a cross, and this was thrown in the toilet. Weeping, he fished it out and pressed it to his heart. Yun fasted often, and he prayed for the Chinese churches, his fellow inmates, and himself. He was finally released after ten years. Ten years. Still strong in the faith, and refusing any compromise with the world or with the government-supported churches. I don't know the rest of you in the story, but I bet he took that book that told people how to get to heaven and he kept sh sharing the good news. Maybe they eventually took his life. I don't know his story. But Jesus told us if they persecuted him, they will persecute us. We don't belong to this world any longer, so they might just hate us for that. 
We're so blessed to live in America with the freedoms that we have, particularly the freedoms of speech and religion. Yet there is persecution here as well. Churches in America have been burnt to the ground. There have been shootings and protests and all kinds of stuff happening. And now sometimes people or families will even abuse their own family members when they come to faith in Jesus. They will mock and they will jeer. I, my mom would tell me that after she came to faith in uh, Jesus when she was a college student, that my grandfather would mock her and it hurt her deeply. I've heard of employers making life hard on employees who are Christians sometimes. I've heard of these things. Specifically bothering and mis mistreating those employees. My brother told me the story of a young girl who came to his youth group. He was, uh, I think, 16 years as a uh, youth minister in Chico. And this little girl, she came to youth group. Her parents, they didn't go to church or anything like that. And she came to uh, my brother's youth group, and he, uh, she came to faith in Jesus. He gave her a Bible. She goes home, her dad caught her reading the Bible, and he tore it up in pieces and stomped and yelled and screamed, and he forbid the Bible to ever be in his house again. She told my brother about it, and my brother gave her another Bible. She goes home, she got caught with it again. The same thing happened. The next thing was, I think, divinely inspired. My brother took a textbook, I believe it was, and he skinned off the cover, and he glued it to the cover of the Bible. And now she's just reading her math book, or whatever it was. She could keep it on the shelf. That, he looked for it, too, and he couldn't find it. This is persecution. In various forms and in various ways and various levels of severity. And I tell you, if our nation keeps spiraling down the toilet morally and all over the levels as it seems to be doing, we're going to lose our freedoms of speech and religion one day and persecution will come. Can you imagine the church in America going underground? Wow, what a sad day, but it might be a glorious day too. Sometimes I think we might need a sprinkling of persecution to kick us into gear. Let's pray for our country. Let's pray for a revival that will take place and so many souls get saved that it actually changes the fabric of our land. That's what we really need, right? Let's pray that we get to keep our freedoms. But as Paul prepared the Thessalonians, let's look at verse 4. Back in verse 4, he says, In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted, and it turned out that way, as you well know. See, he was preparing them for what was going to happen. And so I want to prepare God's people as well, because here it is. God tells us these things are going to happen. And so I don't want anybody to become unsettled, right, if something like that did happen one day. Lord willing, it won't happen in our lifetime, but maybe God is willing it happens in our lifetime. I don't know. But let's be prepared, mentally and spiritually, realizing that we're going to serve Jesus no matter what, and no matter what it takes, right? That's what we're going to do. And no one can take Jesus away from us. They can take our property and our possessions and our freedoms and so forth, but they can never take your Savior. At the end, we'll, we'll pray for the persecuted church and pray for our nation as well. But Jesus said, when you're persecuted, he said, uh, great is your reward in heaven. No. Those, the, those are the heroes. They're going to have the biggest rewards in heaven. Those who have been persecuted, the martyrs, well, we're going to stand aside for them, give them big hugs. And celebrate him in heaven. Jesus said, In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. 
Verse 5. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you, and that our labors might have been in vain. Okay, Paul was worried that these new baby Christians would become so unsettled and, and given to the devil's lies and temptations that they would fall from their faith. Well, you can fall from your faith if you start to doubt Jesus. So Paul was worried sick about them. Hmm. There was a time, since we've been talking about China, I heard a missionary talk about this. There was a time when missionaries were allowed in China. I believe it was the 1800s. Okay. So it's been a while. And they allowed missionaries to go in there for a time. But in the early, by the 1920s and up to the 50s, they were booting all the missionaries out of China. They completely rid their, their nation of all the missionaries. And so the missionaries that were there had started the church, and they were afraid. Like, what is going to happen to these, these churches and the government oppression? And it was like 20-something years or whatever it was before the Westerners got to go back in. I don't know if they've ever let missionaries uh, back in since then, but they can let Westerners and sometimes missionaries go in secret as a doctor or a teacher or something like that. But anyway, when the missionaries got to go back in, they were terrified that the church in China may have been destroyed. They've been praying for years and years, decades. Was the church still there? Did the devil destroy it? Well, to their delight, when they went back in, they found the underground church was thriving. Oh, it was hard. It was difficult. But they were growing by leaps and bounds. Right? The Lord will build his church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. And so Paul's going to find out that the Thessalonians are doing great. Verse 6, <clears throat> But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought us good news about your faith. And love, he has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we are encouraged about you because of your faith. So like the missionaries in China, so worried, or I should say they are like Paul, so worried. <laughs> He's overjoyed now because they're doing good. They're doing, they still love Jesus. No doubt they've been persecuted. They've walked through the fire. Yeah, they were probably unsettled, but they clung to the Savior. And Paul, in all his distress, and all his persecution, see, all that melts away and it doesn't even matter. Paul is giving his life for the gospel of Jesus. Literally giving his life, and he'll take his life one day. And so to see that these children in Christ are, are loving Jesus is everything to him. Everything to him. And so he says things like in verse 8, For now we really live, right? since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? <laughs> How awesome. He's sacrificing his life for the gospel of Jesus, and he sees that it's bearing fruit, fruit that will last, and Paul knows no greater joy. I love it. In the presence of God, in the presence of Jesus, he's celebrating these people because they have firm and strong faith. Don't you love to see people with firm and strong faith? It's so encouraging. To see people who have fought the good fight and keep the faith and nothing shakes them. That's why we love the persecuted church too. Right? 
But let's look around at these purple chairs because there's many of us who have fought the good fight. We're still fighting it, but our faith is not going anywhere. Young people, if you have parents that have true lasting faith in Jesus, you need to rise up and call them blessed. You need to rejoice in the presence of Jesus over parents who love him. Mm, absolutely, you don't even know how blessed you are. And if your parents are struggling in the faith, well then pray for them and point them to Jesus. You know, funerals are, are never easy for anyone, including the minister. But I tell you, the best funerals, if you can say that, the best funerals, are <laughs> the best funerals though, are this. Of an elderly person who has been walking with Jesus for eons. And they are strong in the faith. They have a vibrant faith. And they've passed through fire after fire. They've walked in the valley of shadow of death so many times, right? They've been in the pain. But then they've been on the mountaintop. And they've been filled with joy. And they've been through all the ups and downs of this crazy life. And through it all, they have clung to the Savior. Mm. And then death is just going home to be with Jesus. Those are the best funerals. Really, because it's a celebration. Yeah, we're sad and we're broken, but it's like, well, we'll look at that life. I want to be like that. It's a beautiful testimony. That's what we want to live, guys. Let's live a life like that so that people stand over our grave and go, I want to be like that. They stood the test. Right? They passed it. They clung to the Jesus. So even our memory might encourage them and build their faith through the ages, hopefully. Well, in verse 8, he says, now we really live <laughs> since you're walking firm in the Lord. Let, let me read what John says in 3 John. I neglect little 3 John. 2nd and 3rd, I, I forget they exist sometimes. <laughs> Isn't any books in there? But this is 3 John, only one chapter, verse 3 and 4. He says this. He's an old man. He says, it, was, it gives me great joy when some believers came and testified about your faithfulness to the truth. He's talking to his friend Gaius. Telling how you continue to walk in it. He says, I have no greater joy. I underline this in my Bible. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Mm -hmm. Now that, he, Gaius is not his flesh and blood child. That's a spiritual child. He must have led him to Christ. He says, I, I have no greater joy in this, under, under the sun, than to see that my kids, my spiritual kids are walking with Jesus. Mm -hmm. Beautiful, beautiful. And we all have people that we love and care for. The friends and the family and the people at work and the neighbors. Boy, when they come to faith and they stay in the faith, there's nothing greater. Right? What a joy. Right? What a joy. But I know a lot of them are walking with Jesus and they're not as they should be. So pray for them. Pray for them. And point. Be, a, be with that flashing sign pointing them to Jesus until he puts you into the grave. Okay? That's our job. Pray for them. Point them to Jesus. Now, personally, I rejoice over you who are walking in the truth of Christ. Mm -hmm. It is my great joy to look at God's people and see people who are walking in the faith. Sometimes, honestly, as a pastor, I can be a bit discouraged. Not all the time. I have my moments. From time to time, I can get a little discouraged. Because I want to see more people come to faith in Jesus. And it's a slow go in Red Bluff, it seems. 
not just this church, but I know many other pastors, and it's a slow go in our community, but probably all communities. And I do, I get discouraged sometimes about these things. And I see people come and go out of this congregation, people we love, and then they leave, and my heart's broken over it sometimes, and I get discouraged. And the enemy, what does he do? He's right there, isn't he? Discouragement is one of his great weapons, by the way. When you're feeling terribly discouraged, realize that's the devil. That's not God. And ask for God's help, and he'll, he'll lift you up out of that. So sometimes when I get discouraged, and, and then even uh, as I'm studying the scripture this week, I've been encouraged when I look at verse 8 and verse 9. Because it reminds me of all the things that God is doing. Because I see you with my own eyes this morning. <laughs> What's God doing here? This is it. You, right? What God is doing in this church. As you stand firm in the faith, as you grow and love Him more and more. What is God doing here? You guys are what God is doing here. And that fills me with joy. And let's pray for more to come. And to know the love and the grace of Jesus. Verse 10. Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what's lacking in your faith. Boy, he wants to see those dear Thessalonians what's lacking in their faith. Well, they're baby Christians. I'm sure there's lots of things lacking in their faith. So he wants to be there to help them, encourage them, and teach them. Verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and the Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. Well, you know God did clear the way for Paul to go see the Thessalonians, but it was about five years later. Hmm. Don't we want everything right now? <laughs> but you know, God's time is always better than ours. Oh, I bet it hurt Paul for five years. Of course, he wrote letters. He sent Timothy. And so sometimes, you ever feel like your hands are tied and there's just nothing you can do about the situation? What do you, there's nothing I can do but pray. Wait, think about that for a second. There's nothing you can do but pray. There's nothing you can do but talk to the king of the universe. The Almighty. Hmm. And so what we do sometimes when we feel like there's nothing we can do but pray. Well, let's pray and let's entrust that person. Let's entrust that situation unto the mighty hands of Jesus. And leave it there and pray and have faith. And God will work it out in his perfect timing. Verse 12. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everybody else, just as ours does for you. He's asking God to have their love grow, increase, and then overflow. Isn't that cool? So love can grow, therefore love can probably shrink. And I love it. Love apparently can overflow. <laughs> That's kind of cool, right? So I picture a cup. You're pouring water into a cup. That's your love. So love can always grow more and more, but then when it gets to the top, it doesn't stop. Your love can actually overflow for other people. That's really the goal. And so we want to pray that God would help our love for one another in the congregation, as he says, everybody else, because we're supposed to love God with all our hearts. And we're supposed to love other people, right? And there's a special love for those in the church, though. And so this love is supposed to Increase and even overflow. Did you know the Savior Jesus was very concerned about us loving each other in the church? He was very concerned about that. He gave us a very special commandment just for us, just for the church. 
Yes, we have to love even our enemies. So check it out. This is the one just for the church. If you're taking notes, John 13, 34. Jesus said, a new command I give you, love one another. And then here's the, here's the deal. He says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. That's really why this command is new. He says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The world is watching. If we're squabbling and acting like morons and idiots, <laughs> the world's like, hey, I want to be a Christian. Look at that. But they look at us and go, wow, look at those people. They love each other. They love God. Right? They might think, maybe I want to check it out. And so Jesus says, you're supposed to love hmm, like he loves us. That means it's a sacrificial, all-in love. Now, how do we do that? Like, one, how do we as a congregation love each other sacrificially like Jesus? I have to admit, I don't always know how to do that. Because that's huge, right? But here's the deal. Let's just try to go for it and do the best we can. And I think this is how love works. I think when you start trying to love each other, even if your cup has got a little bit in it, <laughs> I think as you practice it, it will get fuller and fuller. And it might even start to overflow. So let's try to love each other and care for each other the best that we can. And we don't even know how to do that. But let's try to go out of our way to bless one another, encourage, connect, and love and care until it overflows. Until it overflows. Teach us how to do that, Lord. Please, we pray. Well, I know that we do have to forgive one another. That's definitely going to be in that overflowing. If our love's going to overflow, you've got to forgive. So people are going to step on each other's toes and hurt each other every once in a while. Welcome to the family. So what do we do? We forgive. Love covers over a multitude of sins, the Bible says. Or as I like to say, love covers over a multitude of stupidness. <laughs> we just got to, I just, no, I'm just going to keep loving. Just love. I forgive. I let it go. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Let's try to be helpful and compassionate and caring. And weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And our last verse for this morning. Verse 13, may he strengthen your hearts yeah. so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus returns with all his holy ones. That's a cool verse. There's a lot going on there. We're going to talk about his return with his holy ones in the middle of chapter 4 because the rapture's coming up. Don't miss that one. I think that, in fact, the holy ones, I think those are the saints who have died and their spirits are going to come with Jesus on the day of the rapture and get new bodies. I think that might be what he's talking about there. But Jesus is returning. He's only going to stay away for so long that he's going to come and take his people. And so you could turn verse 13 into your own personal prayer. I'd love to take a scripture and make it a prayer from my heart. You could say this, Lord Jesus, please strengthen my heart so that I'll be holy and blameless when you return. That's a great prayer. Yeah. And we want that to be our heart's desire, to be holy and blameless. So therefore, what does it say in Hebrews? Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run the race, right? Fixing our eyes on Jesus. We want our heart's desire to be this. When the Master returns, to look at us and smile and say, Well done, good and faithful servant.
Let's emblazon that upon our souls. Let us emblazon that upon our minds and upon our lives. And let us live accordingly to make that happen, right? And I know we're, we're not perfect. And we, we mess up. Oh, you just cling to Jesus with all you got. And he's going to take care of us, right? That if we could live... And in the background here, well done, good and faithful servant. In fact, wouldn't that help guide your steps throughout life? <laughs> will I hear that if I do this? Will, will I hear that if I say that or act this way? Oh, Lord, that was dumb. Please forgive me. So let us clean up our lives for the sake of Jesus. So that is our scripture this morning. Wonderful stuff. God's word is so good. Is anyone a little unsettled this morning? Have you been tempted to doubt? To doubt God, maybe? Well, why don't you pray about that, if that's you? Right? You reject that temptation and choose to cling to the truth, even if you can't see, even if you're kind of in the dark right now. He'll get you into the light so you can see. I'm going to pray for the persecuted brothers and sisters and for our nation. Gracious God, there is none like you. You are so good and so magnificent and so loving and so patient and so awesome. <laughs> wow. And you call us to be your kids, you call us to be your children. What a privilege, Lord. What a privilege. And so we just say, please forgive us and help us, Lord. We pray that, that you would look upon us when you return and say, well done. Good and faithful service. So help us, Lord, to live accordingly to make that be happening in our lives. We need your power. We are weak. We need your strength. We are fragile, Lord. Lord, I lift up those who are feeling unsettled this morning. And maybe tempted and feeling like their faith has been shaken or rattled a little bit or whatever they're going through this morning, I pray that you settle them down, Holy Spirit. And the peace of Christ would come upon them even right very now, right this very moment. And they would cling to you, choosing to cling to you, even though it's a little dark and they cannot see well. And I pray, Lord, you bring your light so they can see. Help them to trust you. Help them to be rooted and strong in the faith and reject the enemy. Lord, we lift up the persecuted church in China and Africa and India and all the Muslim countries and all the, the places in North Korea. You know them all, Lord. You know them all. First, I want to say thank you for these dear brothers and sisters and their tremendous faith and example. And I pray for the touch of Christ upon each one of them. I pray you protect them and rescue them. And I pray that even if they have to suffer, that there would be a light shining from them that is undeniable. And they could even look at their persecutors with the love of Jesus, and their persecutors would see it, and they would melt. And they would want what these Christians have. And so I pray, Lord, for the church in these countries, for it to thrive and for it to grow and for the gates of hell to shrink back and melt away, that you would build your church. Lord, we think of America 
how our hearts are grieved because it's a cesspool in so many ways. Things that are flowing out of the White House, things that are flowing from, from our government, God. It's just horrendous. The things that, that are allowed and spoken of as good that used to be called evil. I am so sorry, Lord. And so we confess the sins of a nation before you. That we are wicked. It is a wicked nation. And it isn't as we should be. And we pray for your mercy, God. We pray for the mercy of Jesus to fall upon us. We do not deserve it, but we know you are merciful. And we pray, Lord, you wouldn't destroy us and wouldn't judge us yet. But you bring an awakening into our land and the fear of God would fall upon men and women and children, the old and the young, and that eyes would be opened and they would run to Jesus. And you would change our land, Lord. And you would revive us. Lord, we pray that our freedoms would stay intact of speech and religion, that we could meet openly. But if ever that were to change, we'd give you praise. We'll go underground. We'll do whatever it takes. Because your church will not be stamped out, Lord. And I pray for us that if persecution comes into our lives in minor ways or major ways in the future, that you would give us the strength to endure, the strength to speak in love to even those who persecute us. What did you tell us? Pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who mistreat you. That we might be children of our Father in heaven. And Lord, we pray that we might be holy and blameless in your great sight when you return. Thank you that you are coming back. But Lord, I pray that you find us ready. You find us clean. So thank you, Lord. In Christ we pray. Amen.